Well, yesterday was my last day teaching of the school year. School is over, summer is out. But the last chapter of my book was a worldview approach to history. Now, I know not, history is not everyone's favorite topic, and sometimes is the last chapter in a lot of textbooks in high school classes. They get skipped because you kind of take time in the previous chapters, you run out of time, and sometimes it's a quick run through. Last year, with COVID happening at the end of the year, I had to skip the last few chapters, and I didn't get to the history and different aspects at the very end of my book with my worldview class. But this year, as I was planning out how I would end the year, I looked at the chapter on history, and I thought, look, there is some important stuff to deal with here, and there is an important way in which we need to look at history from a Christian worldview perspective and recognize how worldviews affect history. And so I figured I would take a few days with my high school students because I also think that what was in the book and what I discussed with them and what I'm going to be talking about with you guys today is very relevant to some things that we hear in our culture and what you might have clicked on this video for. And that is this statement that you are on the wrong side of history or, hey, we're on the right side of history. What does this mean to be on the wrong or right side of history? And so I'm going to share my thoughts on why I think we say this, why I actually think this is problematic, why it has some issues, and that when you have a Christian worldview approach to history, why actually really that provides a lot of significant meaning and impact into the decisions that we make and really where we stand in the future. And I think hopefully it will be maybe a little bit different, maybe not everyone's favorite topic, but I think it will be encouraging to you as we look at how worldviews look at history throughout or, or how they look at history and how it makes sense of what has happened and what is going to happen in the future. So if this is your first time, my name is Ryan Pauly. This is a weekly show where I challenge you to think deeply about the Christian worldview, what Christians believe, how to defend it, and how to faithfully live it out. Now, I will say before I jump into this week's topic that last week in the end of the month Q&A, um, I didn't like how I answered the last question on my view of the age of the earth. Uh, that happens from time to time, especially when I'm doing Q&As and a question comes in and I kind of share my thoughts on it and I get done and I go, you know, I really don't like how I said that. I, I wish I would have said this and I got done and I just was racking my mind of all the things I wish I would have said and all the things that I didn't say or maybe I could have said better. So what I did actually is I wanted to have um, I want to have the conversation again, but this time I wanted to have a young earth creationist come on to discuss the biblical justification for the earth being young or old, not necessarily getting into the scientific evidence, but just simply asking the question, does Genesis and does scripture allow for an old earth interpretation or is the only possible correct interpretation using scripture alone, a young earth interpretation. So I actually found someone who's going to come on. And if everything works out, uh, a person by the name of Apollo Jedi, that is the, the uh, Twitter handle and the blog, Apollo Jedi is going to come on next Friday, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to have a conversation on the age of the earth and, and kind of hear some of the pushbacks and some of the things that I said last week, as well as some other things that I didn't mention, as well as I want to hear what he has to think on, on Genesis only allowing for that young earth interpretation, or maybe he doesn't necessarily take that view. So I'll let him explain, but that is going to be the conversation next week. Really looking forward to that. And then again, uh, the week after that, I am gone uh, on a, a maven uh, immersive experience trip to Salt Lake City, Utah, training students, going out there talking with Mormons and um, having a great time doing training and theological training with them and, and sharing the gospel with uh, Mormons out in Salt Lake City, Utah, and down at Provo and BYU. And so I'm going to have a lot of fun there. And so there won't be a stream the following week because I will be gone in Utah with those students. But I'm sure that the week after that, there'll be uh, some information and a lot to share about what happened on that trip. And if you're curious, you can always check out 
uh, maventruth.com uh, and check out those immersive experiences if you want to see what they're about and maybe take uh, your high school group on them. I am a field guide, so I help lead those trips. Um, and so if you want to go, I'm one of the field guides that may take you on that trip. So with that being said, uh, thank you so much for being here. Sarah, hi, good to see you here. Um, and uh, I, I hope that this is an encouragement to you again. I think this is something that we don't think is deeply about. And um, so I hope that some of the things I have to share kind of help you, as with all of the things that I talk about, I, I hope it helps you have better conversations. I hope it helps you be able to recognize that when someone is speaking a certain way, then you go, oh, I recognize the worldview behind that that is guiding and informing the claims that they're making so that you can have better conversations. Right. That is the goal of this show is that, is that I want you to better understand what other people believe and better understand what Christians believe so that conversations become better, that you can more effectively share Christ with people and, and, and see them or at least understand them and be able to answer those questions and lead them to a confident understanding of what Christians believe. So with that, this idea of the wrong side of history. Now, if you look this up on Google and I actually just deleted this, I think this might be interesting, but uh, this term really became popular as far as a search term on Google in about 2007. And it started with actually President Barack Obama. About 2007, he started using this term, talking about people that were on the wrong side of history, as well as talking about people who are on the right side of history. And since then, you see this growth in the amount of people that are Google searching both of these terms. And often, this term is attached to uh, some sort of political agenda. And often it's a moral one. So for example, the one uh, example that I will bring up here, uh, this was written just recently, February 25, uh, 2021. Uh, this is at the LALGBTcenter.org uh, at the top. And this is an article titled, The Los Angeles LGBT Center Commends U.S. House of Representatives for Passing the Equality Act. Calls on U.S. Senate to do the same. There you go, February 25, 2021. Um, but if we scroll down here, it says right here, with the passage of the Equality Act in the House, the Senate now has a job to do, and we must make sure they do it. Passing the Equality Act will put the Senate and our nation on the right side of history. And indeed, this is the historic moment to do so. We will do all we can to make sure the Senate grasps this moment and joins our fight for equality. And this really, you see this kind of happening all over the place is you, you see, and, and you can look this up. If you just Google search wrong side of history, this comes up in a lot of articles as well as YouTube. Uh, Obama used the term when talking about Russia once and uh, disagreeing with something that Russia had done and said, look, the whole world will show that Russia is on the wrong side of history. And there's another interview that Obama is uh, interviewing or talking about this woman who had done some incredible work in fighting for, uh, I think it was like immigration reform or something of that nature and talking about how she is on the right side of history. And so we often see this term, uh, the wrong or right side of history attached to um, these moral uh, kind of more political agendas uh, that people are trying to pass. Uh, if you oppose same sex marriage, you're often told that you are on the wrong side of history. If you stand against abortion, you are told that you're often on the wrong side of history, that you are stuck in the past. I'm curious if anybody here has, you know, watching, you know, welcome slam. Thank you so much for being here. Um, if you guys have heard this before and what, um, if, if you can't comment, maybe, uh, what, 
what topics have you heard this used for, whether it's on the right or wrong side of history? Now, there's also articles that you can find uh, where people called out a certain um, uh, congressmen and women uh, that, that stood for Trump and said, you are on the wrong side of history. And so we often see it coming in that way. But I'm curious if there's other examples that you have uh, that you would like to comment, uh, whether you're watching live in the live chat or after the fact in the comment section below on what sort of uh, issues have you heard this statement attached to? But we often hear this as well, because look, as a Christian, you hold to the Bible, this book that was written thousands of years ago, 2000 years ago in the New Testament, you need to progress. You need to recognize things are changing. You need to re recognize that we don't live in the same world. Stop being stuck in the past. Kind of get with the system, right? And there's a lot of weight to this kind of claim that you were on the wrong side of history because as people, like we want to get along. Right? We, want to, we want to get along with the group that we're living in. We don't like being on the outside. And so this statement is kind of like saying, you know, you, you're kind of on the losing side. Don't you want to be on the right side? Don't you want to be on the right side? Don't you want to be on the winning side? Don't you want to come along over here and, and be successful rather than being over here and eventually being on the wrong side? And, and this is one of the kind of the, sometimes the hidden assumption, if you can call it that of using this term of the wrong side or right side of history is, is it's like saying, you know, you're going to lose eventually. So why don't you just give up now? Why continue to fight for biblical sexuality? Culture is clearly going in a different direction. You are on the wrong side of history. You'll recognize, you'll look back in the future and see, wow, I lost. I was on the losing side. I should have switched over. I should have gone over and joined this movement because this is the right way to go. Now, there's some major issues with this, not just from a Christian worldview, but also philosophically speaking that we're going to be talking about. And so I'm going to be talking about some of the problems that we see, as I've already kind of brought up, as well as addressing some of the ways that we need to respond and looking at a Christian view of history and how that radically shapes the way that we see ourselves. And so that is going to be what we look at. Now, first of all, let's just look at some scripture here really quick, because here's the first major problem, I think, with this claim that we are on the wrong side of history. Um, and it's this, it's that history is moving in this inevitable direction, right? And this is where you see a secular influence of history is that, look, we are progressing, right? So again, secularism, there is no God. Therefore, God is not going to save us. Now, often you will hear, and there's different uh, beliefs on this, and though people make different statements on this, but you'll, you'll, you'll hear this idea that, um, look, the problem with the world is that we are just... We're either, you know, religion, religions poisons everything is Christopher Hitchens book. Um, you have uh, the problem is that we're just not smart enough. Uh, the problem is that we're kind of selfish. And so through technology, through removing religion, through stop, you know, getting people to stop living in the past and focusing on progress, focusing on what's happening in the moment and, and getting smarter each day as we evolve, we are going to get better and better and better. That is a secular view. And so since there is no God, there's no God that's going to save us. Therefore, humans become, we become our own saviors. We are going to save us because there's no God to save us. And so what can we do to save us? And so we look at these problems in culture and we are now trying to create fixes for them. Now, that's not always a bad thing. It is good to see where problems are and bring about some change. But we have to recognize this idea of what it's saying is like, this is going to happen, right? Because of determinism within a secular worldview, we are going in this direction. There's almost nothing that you can do about it, right? You're going to lose. You might as well jump over to the winning side. 
Why continue to stay stuck in the past? Why continue to stay stuck in your outdated, ancient biblical teaching in standing up for a biblical view of sexuality or a biblical view of marriage? Join in with the winning side. And so we recognize that's one problem is that I would argue strongly against determinism, that it is not true, that we are not moving in this inevitable direction, and that there are things that we can do to change the direction and the course of history. And many seculars would also agree with this. And that's why they're they're advocating for different social movements, is that they want to see history go in a different direction. If we stay on this course, this is the way it's going to go. And so we're trying to create social change. We're trying to bring awareness to this to get it to go in a different direction. And I think this is the first reason why Christianity makes better sense of history is because Christianity allows us as free beings to recognize right and wrong, which we'll get to here in a moment, to be able to make choices that lead us onto a better direction. If a naturalistic secular worldview is true, and often the way that it is assumed with this statement that you're on the wrong side of history, that history is inevitable, this is determined, it is going to happen, you might as well jump on the winning side now, then why create try to create social change? <laughs> why out there trying to advocate for these things? Because if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. There's nothing really that I can do about it. Now, this is also... Again, not always, but sometimes implied by this statement is, is look, you, you're, you're going to lose, so just give up now. Stop fighting. Why are you still out there arguing against abortion? Why are you still trying to persuade for the pro-life case? Why are you still trying to fight for natural, you know, traditional biblical marriage and sexuality? Like, just give up. You've lost. And I want to encourage you. And the reason why I'm still doing this channel and a lot of Christians haven't given up is that we recognize to give up is just say, okay, fine, we've lost. And the culture will go in a different direction. It is the fact when cultural reformers didn't give up, continued to push for what they knew is right, that we saw huge and amazing changes. Imagine if some of these massive cultural reformers all the way from, you know, Wilberforce with slavery in England to Bonhoeffer in Germany to Martin Luther King Jr. and all these different people who have reformed culture in amazing, incredible ways that we still celebrate today. Imagine if they would have gone, well, history is inevitable. It's going to happen. I might as well just give up. No, it's not inevitable. There are things that we can do to persuade. There are things that we can do to create change. And so this assumption behind this is that you're on the wrong side of history. You are going to realize one day you lost. It's inevitable. Just give up. Come join us is not the way that it actually happens. And it's also would dismiss or discredit a lot of the things that even secularists are doing and fighting for what they believe is right. We need to continue to push for what is right, because as long as we push, then the conversation can keeps keeps going. Here's another really big ish issue. It, with this idea, and this is where I think some, some uh, I want to share scripture with you, is that this assumes that we know what the history will be, that we know the future. Why do we think that we know the future? That we know in 50 or 100 years, they will look back and write in their history books of what happened today, they did what was good. This was the right thing. Right, And we see very clearly, Old Testament, Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow. You don't know what a day may bring. 
James chapter four. Come on now, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, and it is. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whether so, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, one thing that we see here in, in verse 14 is this you, right? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's talking about the verse 13 of that you're going to go to this town and you're going to trade and you're going to make a profit. It's talking about these business people. And it's this, this idea that we have this arrogance sometimes to us that we know how we can control the events. That I will do this and this will happen. And then I'm going to sell this. And this is what the future will say. And you are going to be on the wrong side of history because this is the way it will happen. And what James, it says here in James chapter four, I think very clearly is you fail to recognize how God is in control of all things. And at the end of 14, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Do you realize how temporary natural life is? That we're just a mist that can fade away at any moment? That really eternal life is really what matters. Now, it's not saying this life doesn't matter. Of course it does. God has created us and he's placed us here for a moment. And we are called to participate in his kingdom work in the moment we live. But if we're going to sit there and think that I know what future generations will say, and I know how they're going to judge us, and they will look back on 2021 and say, look, you got it right. That is just something we simply don't know. The key for us as Christians, what we need to say is, look, if the Lord wills it, I don't know the future. I don't know what culture is going to be like. I don't know if we're going to keep getting, uh, I don't know if we're going to be getting better. And I don't know if we are going to get worse. I don't know what's going to happen when I'm 50. I don't know what's going to, what our world is going to be like when I'm 70. What I am called to do is to be faithful to God in the place that he has put me. As Greg Kokel says, and I love it, it's bloom where you're planted. Wherever you are planted, grow and bloom and, and be and flourish where God has you in the moment. And if God moves you, he moves you to a new place. You don't know what will happen. And I think sometimes as Christians, we, we can do our research, right? And we can look at stats and we can look at projections and we can say, look, if we keep going here, look, this is going to be the path that we're on. However, we hopefully don't lose hope in that and don't go, oh, well, here's where our culture is going. So it's just going, it's just going down a tube. Let's just give up, right? We're on the losing side. We're just going to fail. So might as well just give up, right? We have to recognize our responsibility to fight, our responsibility to push forward, our responsibility to continue to stand for what is true and good and beautiful and continue to present the gospel message. We don't know what culture will be like in 50 years from now. And I think one of the major problems, as I mentioned a few times and just kind of summarizing here, the second major thing I think, or the third one, is that the future is blank. We don't know what's going to be written in the history books in 100 years. And so, so to sit here and say, I know, you Christians for standing against home, uh, you know, same-sex marriage and for standing against abortion and for standing against the Equality Act, you will be on the right side of history. And we, as that one article I showed you, in passing the Equality Act will be on the right side of history. That is just knowledge that we don't have. We don't know if that's going to be the way it is. The issue 
before we get again, kind of getting more to the Christian worldview approach to this is this claim also kind of, I think, can stop arguments from happening. Now, my arguments, I mean, good conversations, right? Going back and forth and presenting an argument and responding, right? It is a conversation stopper. It's like, hey, you are going to lose. Just give up. Stop talking. Stop trying to fight for your case. Instead of saying, look, let's encourage to have more people in the conversation to continue pressing forward and continue trying to advocate for different ideas and evaluating those different ideas and weighing them out and trying to see which makes the most sense. And so when we look at this kind of issue, it presumes to know what future generations, how they'll judge us. And that's simply false. We don't know how future generations are going to judge us. Another really important difficulty or, or issue with this understanding of you're on the wrong side of history is that it presumes that the moral judgments we make today are better than the ones we made in the past, that we are becoming better. Our moral knowledge is growing. The question from a secular view is, how do you know that? How do you know that we're getting better? Or what is better? What is the standard of morality in which you can say we are getting better? Now, there's many shows I've done kind of on this topic, but this argument that I make and and what I argue for is that without God as a foundation, we do not have an objective standard of morality. Now, people will say, well, the standard of morality is human flourishing. Well, why is flourishing good? Why is that good? Unless we have an objective standard for how to judge good, then it's impossible for us to say that one thing is better than the other. And so all we have is, you know, a sport where you just have a difference, right? And how I often present this to my high schoolers is to say, um, all right, I have two teams. One team scores 78, another team scores 85. Who wins? Now, often they'll say, you know, the team with 85. Why? Because they have more points. Well, is more points always better? And then you always have someone say, well, no, not necessarily golf. If you score 75, you win. Right. So if we're going to be able to know which one is better, 85 or 71, we have to know what is the purpose. What are we trying to achieve? Is a lower score better? Is a higher score better? And so the same thing we have to ask is in our culture, we have these changing moral standards and the secular view is saying we are better now that the moral judgments we make now are better than the ones that we made in the past. But by what standard are we getting better? What is that objective foundation that we are using to judge these things rather than this is what culture agrees upon now? Well, culture agreed upon something different before. Why was that one wrong? This is a, an issue. Now, again, a Christian worldview comes along and says, hey, I, there is a standard that we can use in order to judge this, to know that the freedom that we have now is better than the slavery that we had in the 1800s. Because God has created us to be free. God has created us to love and to care for people. And enslaving them is not caring for them. It's God creating us as image bearers. It's God creating us with value and dignity. And him being a God of love, he is love. And that command is coming out in us in order to care for the those who are hurting and to lift people up. We have a standard to judge these things. We also have a standard, going back to the first issue, we have a standard of that we actually can know how in the future, the present day will be judged, right? We see very clearly in scripture, God has revealed how things are going to end. God has said, this is the way that you, I want you to live. 
Scripture has clearly said these are the people who will inherit the kingdom of God. These are the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. We know that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who repent and turn from their sins and who follow him will inherit the kingdom of God. And that those who don't, the idolaters and the sorcerers and, and those who practice homosexuality and those who practice adultery and those who are engaged in, 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 in um, same-sex heterosexual sin and all these other different things, liars and thieves and, and whatever else is in that list, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not just my opinion. That is what God has revealed. And God is the authority of this world, the creator and sustainer of the world has said, look, here's how I'm going to judge and here's how you will be judged in the end. This is how you reach eternal life with me. And this is, these are the people who will be separated from me. All right. And that passage even ends. It says, and such were some of you. We were all part of that list that was not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Apart from turning and repenting and putting faith in Jesus Christ, that is where we will end up. So we know how the present will be judged. So do I, as a Christian, do I want to be on the side of what culture is saying is right? Or do I want to be on the side of what God is saying is right? Well, what you believe is outdated. There's no date in morality. See, again, this is assuming a secular view of morality, that morality is changing, and therefore older morality is worse, newer morality is better. Rather than objective morality saying that all morality stays the same. Murder was wrong 100 years ago and murder will be wrong in 100 years. And I know that because it is wrong. It says an interview I did with J.P. Moreland talked about how we can know moral knowledge better than we can even know scientific knowledge. That there have been multiple different theories of the electron over the years. And he says, look, I, I could easily think of something in the next hundred years that we discover about the electron that gives us a new, deeper understanding to realize what we currently think about the electron is wrong or flawed. And here's a better understanding. He goes, that's easy. I can, I can think of many things that we could think of to show us that our current theory of the electron is false. But at the same time, there's nothing that I could think of that would make abusing innocent children for fun wrong in a hundred years. That will be wrong in 100 years. That's not going to change. And so we know that just because something is written 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, just because something has been revealed a long time ago, doesn't make that outdated, doesn't make that um, uh, just useless old stuff. We need to get with the system. We need to get with the current moment. No, those historical things stay. God, how God has revealed it to be. And again, this is assuming a secular view, a secular worldview in, in history of how history is changing. We are progressing. We're constantly getting better. Morality is changing and we're becoming better. Rather than a clear view of God has the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he has revealed 2,000 years ago in scripture is what he is guiding our decisions today and how he is going to judge us whenever Jesus returns in the future. And as I've kind of been pointing out here, um, so one, I think the big issue with a secular view of the wrong side of history is that it presumes how future generations will judge us. And from a secular view, you don't know that. From a Christian view, we do know how we are going to be judged. God has told us. The second big issue is that this assumes that what is happening today is better than in the past. That is a secular view. Christian view says, no, it's not necessarily better. There are some things that we have improved upon. We went from slavery to not slavery. That's better. But I can actually say it's better because we have a standard to judge. Another big issue with the wrong side of history is that these claims rely, as I've been saying, on subjective morality, that it's based on what society says. 
And as you notice in culture, it often comes with what is currently the most agreed upon issue in society. If you agree with that, you're on the right side of history. And if you disagree with that, you're on the wrong side of history. Now, I, I don't know if that's a, a true 100% of the time. And I'd be curious, you can leave a comment in the comment section below if you have found a different time where, is there a time where you see kind of in popular media, YouTube or wherever, that someone is saying that a Christian standing against abortion is on the right side of history, besides maybe a Christian saying it, or, um, or, or standing up for traditional marriage, traditional sexuality, biblical sexuality is on the right side of history. No, we often see, you could say like, you know, if you stand up against slavery, you're on the right side of history because that's what our culture believes today. But I don't know if they use the term necessarily, but in the 1800s, they would have said those trying to abolish slavery were probably on the wrong side of history. This is how culture's always done it. This is, look at the history of the world. We've always owned slaves. Why would you come here and try to stop slavery? You're on the wrong side of history. You will see that you will lose one day. Well, guess what? They continued fighting for the abolishing of slavery and they succeeded. It's abolished. And now we look back and go, oh, yes, we see. But in a subjective view of morality, you can't say that they were actually wrong in the 1800s versus a Christian view gives you the ability to say that they are wrong. And so what I wanted my students to see as we were finishing up the year, and hopefully what I have helped you see here, is that a secular, this, this idea of right or wrong view of history assumes a secular view, that we know the way culture is going, we know how they're going to judge us, and therefore, if you stand with what society is doing now, you will either be on the right, or if you stand on the, against society, you are, will be on the wrong side of history, because society gets to set moral standard. From a Christian view, I don't think we should necessarily use either of these phrases. Now, ultimately, we know how history is going to turn out. We have the Christian meta narrative that we're going to get into here in just a moment. But from the, the moment, as I mentioned, I don't know how they're going to judge us in 50 years. It's possible we get way worse. And they look at what we're doing to now and they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that you like didn't walk around punching each other in the face. <laughs> uh, man, how, how crazy were you? You were horrible people. You like gave each other hugs. What's wrong with you? Like, we have no idea. Now, that's probably not going to happen, but we don't know what culture is going to do. We could get way worse and they look at the things that we did today and think we're crazy, or we could get much better and we could make moral improvements that are actually good improvements grounded in God's nature and look at what we're doing today and go, oh my goodness, what were we thinking? <laughs> I obviously hope that's the case. I hope that we get better morally and we look back and go, oh my goodness, what were we thinking? Uh, but we don't know, even as Christians, to say we are on the right side of history, we're on the wrong side, and this is the way that they are going to judge us. And so how should we view things from a Christian worldview? And then I will get to the questions here. I see there are some questions uh, from Slam in the live chat. Um, I will get to uh, those here at the end, but how do we look at this? from a Christian perspective. How does Christianity look at history? Because isn't history just like retelling the facts of things that happened? Well, yeah, that's a part of it, right? But as I have tried to help you see here, it's how we view what happened in the past, how that informs what we're doing today, and even where we are going in the future. And that's where the worldview effect really does come in strongly is how our understanding of all of human history is where that's leading us in the future. So from a Christian view, we should recognize that all of human history is God unfolding his plan 
for us, for humanity. Right, and as you, most Christians kind of uh, break down the, the biblical meta narrative, right? The overarching story of Scripture is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And when we look at this, we can see into the past and say, look, if we understand God's story, if we look at history from God's perspective of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, what Scripture has laid out to us, it makes so much sense of why we are here and, and what is happening. For example, creation. God has created all things. They all belong to him. And he created us as image bearers, giving us our value and our dignity and our worth, but also created us to steward over creation. God put Adam to work in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Work is a good thing. We are designed and created to work to take care of the things that God has. That's going to inform our politics. That's going to inform our economics. That's going to inform, you know, how we spend our money because this is not just mine. I can't just do whatever I want. I'm called to love people, image bearers, and I am called to steward what God has given me well. Understanding the history of creation and where we came from radically changes us. And that's why it's so different from a secular view of saying we are kind of these accidents of nature. We are the the end result of a long, mindless, unguided process of evolution. There's no rhyme or reason, just the way it worked out. And so here we are as the most advanced species, but you weren't created uniquely in the image of God. You weren't created with purpose. There's no teleology. There's no goal directed. Here's what you are for. We are from a mindless process. And that is affecting, that it affects human value. Do we live by kind of the survival of the fittest and, hey, the, we're stronger, we're, we're, we're better, we're whatever, and therefore we can oppress and we can do what we want? Or do we recognize that even those who are sick, who are hurting, are valuable image bearers, the young, the old, the healthy, the sick, the tall and the short. We are all image bearers with inherent value and dignity. Understanding a history and looking back of creation affects that. We also understand and recognize part two, the fall. That is hugely impactful of how we understand today that we are fallen human beings. This affects is a huge effect on politics that two major views is, is a sin nature view versus a pure nature view, right? Are we inherently sinful, broken human beings and we need authority in order to punish guilty and protect innocent? We need an authority to, to, to create peace and stability in our society or are we inherently good? And the authority needs to kind of remove any boundary that might be in our way, any barrier that might be in our way, and, and allow our goodness to come out. And this is, again, what we see a lot in, in the news today of like Christianity has oppressive views in saying how we are called to live and who we can and cannot sleep with and, and what we can and cannot do with our bodies and that sort of thing. And so to, to those are oppressive views. Those are boundaries. And so to remove those boundaries allows our goodness to come out and therefore allows us to flourish and to get along better. I think that this, again, is it clearly goes against what we see, that when we remove boundaries, we don't necessarily become better people. When, I mean, a simple thought experiment, if, you know, the police said we're not going to arrest anybody tomorrow, Saturday, June 5th. Do whatever you want, no tickets, no arrests, no nothing. What do you think would happen? Do you really think that we would go around and, and be hugging each other? Like maybe not everybody, not everybody. We recognize it is, it is 
easy for us for this natural tendency to do wrong to come out. We have to train and fight to do what is right. The fall explains that so incredibly well. We also see redemption, the work of Jesus and what he has come. God is not just leaving us here to be on our own, but God has come down and taken on human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ and died for us to redeem us, ultimately leading us to our final restoration. And so when we look at this story of the biblical meta narrative of creation and fall, how does that apply to us? Well, one is that we can take that and we can look into the past. Based on God's redemptive story, we can look into the past and realize a few things. One, Christianity is rooted in history. It is a book of history. It is a book retelling what has happened historically, and there is evidence for it and against it. You can scrutinize it. You can say, hey, I, I don't find any evidence for this certain claim. And you can push against and you can present evidence for other things, including like the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But what's important is that Christianity is rooted in, rooted in history. And so we look at the history of the Israelite people. We can look at the way in which God lived and worked in them. We can look at the history of the early church and what we have done. And, and we should, as Christians, be able to look back at history and say, look, this was right, that was wrong. We can should be able to make those moral judgments of what is taking place in different times based on what God has revealed to us. But what I really wanted to get through to my students and, and I'll get to here is, is that of how the redemptive story, the Christian meta-narrative makes sense of today's present. And what I've said a few times already, and I want to repeat because I think it's so important, is that the, the big picture, God's story, our Christian approach to history, it invests purpose and meaning in every point of our lives, right? You are not on this, again, secular approach that one day you're just dead, right? You, you don't know how much time you have. You are here and one day you will be gone at death. Nothing happens. And so guess what? You only live once. Have fun. Live it up. Enjoy life. Do what makes you happy, right? That is often what we hear is this purpose of life is to be happy. Do what you want because look, this is the way, this is the history, right? This is where we've been. This is where I'm going. I'm just going to die. Let's have fun. It's the Christian view saying, no, your life does not just stop at death. Jesus Christ came and died to redeem us, to restore us. There is a heaven or hell and the decisions that you make now matter. They matter. It is going to take you in one direction or in another. You have a choice of whether you want God or not. You have a choice in who you are going to love and who you're going to hate. You have a choices of how you're going to help this person or hurt this person. This matters. The Christian who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven, right? Jesus Christ has covered and paid for the sins that we have committed. We do wrong. We are sinful. But in the book of Revelation talks about that the, those who do not have their names written in the book of life will be judged based on the things they have done. What you do matters. And this is huge because if we even want to compare Christianity to other worldviews, that if we want to take like a cyclical, cyclical view of time and that we are in this repeating cycle and we kind of keep going through versus a linear view of time and that there's one past, one present, and one future, and this is where time is going, that also gives us a goal direction, a goal directive or directed interpretation of history, right? You're going in this direction. 
What are your goals? Right? Where do you want, what do you want to accomplish in life? Right? If you want to be a doctor, you need to go to medical school. If you want to go to medical school, you got to go to a good college. You probably got to get a degree in like biology or I don't know what other degrees you get from medical school, some sort of science degree. And if you want to do that, you got to get good grades in high school. It matters what you do. And are you going to study this weekend for that test? Or are you just going to blow it off and play your video games? When we have goals in life, it affects every single decision that we make moving down, right? If your goal is to become a professional athlete, man, you better practice a lot right now, <laughs> better work at it. And we recognize that. And oftentimes in, in, in the advice given, it's like, well, what do you want to do? It's what I, what I ask my professors of like, should I get a PhD? Should I do this? And their first question is, well, what do you want to do? What do you want your future to look like? And that is going to impact and inform the decisions that you make today. This Christian view of history being this linear view of history of this is the direction going gives us a goal-directed interpretation. It's not just this day-to-day, -day, enjoy life, have fun, live it up. But really, we recognize that what I'm doing today matters for all of eternity there's a significance to what I do. And I hope that that's not like overwhelming, like, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. No, every decision is matters so much. What, ah, how do I hold this together? Hopefully that's not your response, but recognizing, wow, this is really important. How I treat my friends, how I treat my parents, how I study, how I work, how I treat my kids, how I treat my neighbor, how I love my neighbor. God has revealed to us in scripture the way that he wants us to live. And the model of our life is Jesus Christ. And so if we recognize, here's my goal, to, to be with God in heaven, right? Because this is now, again, how the redemptive biblical narrative, the, the Christian view of history, that not only makes sense of the past and what has happened and why we are the way that we are and who we are as human beings and why we hate each other and why we love each other. It not only makes sense of the present decisions that we are making, but it also makes sense of the future. Right, that it promises a future kingdom, that Jesus Christ will come back. And it's not just this wishful hope that we have. But in 1 Corinthians 15, like Jesus Christ rose and said, just like he has risen, you will rise. Death has been defeated. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Our victory is in Christ. And there's a promise. Not just this hope that if we learn more. And if we advance scientifically, then we can cure more diseases and make people live a little bit longer, but eventually you're just going to die anyways. And so let's just try to make it better while you're here. There's a true lasting and eternal hope of a true paradise where sin and death and disease is gone and we are filled with joy and life. This is a true paradise that Jesus has promised to us. And I think confirmed that promise, or at least given us good reason to believe that promise through his death and resurrection, that the other worldviews promise of a future utopian state, just, it doesn't fit. There's no hope in getting there. And maybe we make things a little bit better, but you're just going to eventually pass away anyways. And then you're in the grave and you cease to exist. What is the hope in that? And so when we look at this, I think what we recognize in this idea is that Christians aren't necessarily on the right side of history because we don't know what history is going to say in 50 or 100 years. But ultimately, in God's 
meta narrative in the biblical story and the overarching theme of the universe that God is the creator of laid out of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, we know that we're on the right side. We know that we will win. Not just because I have a hope or not just because our culture is going in the right way, but because God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things has said, look, this is the way it's going to be. This is not just my opinion. It's grounded in the all-knowing creator of the universe. And so I can say with confidence that we will be saved. First John 5, you will be saved. Know that you will be saved and of what God has done. And so I think that we need to recognize because of this kind of view of history and where we are going and what God has done, we have a responsibility, right? If, if God has come, created all things for us, we are fallen and, and have broken that relationship. And, and Jesus Christ has come back to redeem us. And there's a future restoration of all things. We now have a responsibility to see the lost saved. And if we don't have that, I think on the forefront of our mind, like, how do we understand and, and say that I want to follow Christ when that's what Christ came to do is, is to save the lost, to, to reconcile that broken relationship. We have a responsibility of stewarding our talents and our gifts and our time and our money and everything that we have for the purpose of God's kingdom. We also need to study the world that God has created and we need to tell the truth about that world. We need to tell the truth about past events, even if it is uncomfortable. We need to be able to say when someone got something wrong. We need to be able to say when someone gets something right. We have to tell the truth when things get uncomfortable. We need to follow, I think, the truth where it leads. And um, that is our responsibility as we recognize this, but ultimately knowing where we are going. And so I hope that this conversation was helpful. Now I do, I have some time to answer some questions. If you guys have some questions and want to send those in in the live chat, but I, I hope that this has been encouraging to you because I think it's a claim that we hear all the time. And I've tried to kind of go through and think through some of these issues is that we are called to be faithful based on what God has done, what he's done and what he is doing. We sometimes worry about what other people are going to say and write about us. I do. I don't like when people say negative things about me on YouTube or online. And we worry like, oh, what are they going to say? I mean, I had, man, my goodness, I, I, I umpire. Uh, if you're not aware of that, I umpire baseball games. And I was umpiring a game on Memorial Day on Monday. And it wasn't necessarily a bad game. I thought I did all right. But obviously a parent did not like the last call of my game. And after the game, the parent walked right up to me and says, you are an effing terrible umpire. You have a garbage calls, you're garbage umpire. You shouldn't even get a paycheck. And I went, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And he goes, you're a terrible person. I was like, well, you are a very kind person for saying this. Like, I'm just trying to like, hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Like, and, and like that can get people down. Now I'm not down about it. I think I made the right call. I think that he's upset because his team lost. And maybe I called his son out. I don't know who his son was. But I think the issue that, uh, that th this idea of you're going to be on the wrong side of history is that that puts this cultural pressure on you of that you need to worry what people are going to say about you. You need to worry about what people are going to write about you. And I think as Christians, we have to recognize that people are going to write bad things and people are going to say bad things. The question is, what do I care most about? Now, it hurts when people say that. Absolutely. But what do I care most about? Do I want to be faithful to God? based on what he has revealed and what he has said, or do I want to be faithful to culture 
so that they don't say something negative about me. Look, I'm sure those who stood against slavery, they were probably told they're on the wrong side of history. They were probably called bad names, but we recognize they were doing something wrong. And so I think we need to kind of maybe sit back. We need to fight. We need to encourage. We need to advocate for what is good. We need to spread the gospel and truth and call people to repentance and kind of let history do what history does. We are called to be faithful. And again, we're, that's, that's voting. That's challenging. That's being good stewards of our time and our intelligence and everything that we have. It's not sitting back on the couch and just saying, I don't care what happens. Let it happen. That's giving up. And we're not called to do that. But I think that we need to recognize of what is truly most important. Um, all right. Let me take some time. I think that's all I had to say here. I hope that was encouraging to you. Um, that when you hear that, it's like recognizing why they're saying it, kind of the subjective morality behind it, the, the worldviews behind it, the determinism that's behind it, and recognizing that I think Christianity actually offers what we want. We can say that this was wrong, and we can actually judge it. We can say that this is going to be right, and this is how it's going to be future. Uh, it's going to work out in the future. A secular worldview, I don't think, can give those things. Um all right, let's go through some of these questions. Uh, Slam, thank you for sending these in. I'll try to work through as many as I can. And and for those of you who are joining us, uh, we will. Uh, I have about ten more minutes, and so if you want to send any questions uh, on what we just discussed or other issues, uh, you can send those in as well. And if you're listening after the fact, this is the advantage of joining live: is you can ask questions now, or again, join at the last Friday of the month, three p.m. Pacific time, uh, for the live Q and A. And you can also start sending in those questions now on social media. Uh, you can always contact and start getting questions sent in there as well. So uh, let's jump in here. Slam, uh, what about Christians who do not want to use preferred gender pronouns to opposite sex because it is lying? I talked about this a while ago, and since then I've listened to quite a few um, podcasts with Greg Coco Stand a Reason. This question has come in a, a bit to him as well, and I, and I like the way that he responds to it. And I, I don't know what his podcasts are called or else I would recommend them, uh, but you can look up Stand a Reason, maybe preferred pronouns. But... Um, I take the approach that, that I, I would not. And, um, because I do believe that it is stating something to be true that I do not think is, is true. Now, at the same time, as I mentioned in a Q and a, a little while ago, I, I think that there are ways of maybe not necessarily just getting around it. So I wouldn't go out of my way to intentionally call someone, um, a pronoun that they don't want to be called because we also don't call people directly those pronouns. Right. So I'm not like if I'm talking to like Adam. Right. And, and it's a biological female and and, you know, she wants to be called he I'm not going to or she let's see, biological female wants to be called male. I'm not going to be like, well, she maybe I'll just use the name because, again, uh, what I said about names is I, names kind of are gender neutral in a sense. Right. There's Ryan's that are guys and Ryan's that are girls and there's Pat's that are guys and Pat's that are girls. And so some names are more so one gender than another, but not always. And we get to choose names we don't get to choose genders. And so I think um, I, I don't want to use preferred gender pronouns. And so I would, I haven't been in this situation. And so it's more difficult, right? You know, as Greg Coco says, advice is cheap when it doesn't affect me. Um, but I would try to find ways to talk about the individual, the person, or use the name that they have uh, want to be called um, and just not use a pronoun. Um, if they said, look, you have to use this pronoun. I love the way that Greg responds is kind of to use the language that they use kind of back at them in a sense of like, okay, so you are using your power, your position of power to force me to go along with your political position. 
or something of that nature, right? Of like, so you're forcing me to do something that I disagree with. Like, how is that okay? Like, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to go out of my way to call you something you don't want to be called, but like you are now using your position of power and threatening me um, because I don't want to go along with it. Like, how is that okay to use power in that way? And so I think that there's ways that we can respond uh, very difficult in those kind of situations. Um, I don't know. I hope that kind of answers the question, but I, yeah, I, I, you know, there's the book that I'm kind of currently reading and the cover is gone off of it. Um, but this one right here, uh, Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher, uh, so far is a very interesting read. Uh, just this idea of like, don't lie. And, and like the example given in the book is like, if you are told like you have to put a sign in your window, or if you can put a rainbow flag in your window and make everyone happy thinking that you believe something and that will improve your business, like that's lying. Rather than just saying, look, I'm just not going to put the flag and I'm going to stand true to what I believe. And so uh, interesting book. Uh, Sam also asks, what about Christians who do not want to take the vaccine for whatever reason? Um, I personally don't think that this should be uh, forced. Um, I think there are many reasons uh, that someone may not want to. And we already kind of give people exemptions. You know, there's already kind of the anti-vaxxers of, of students who don't want to get vaccines, whatever vaccine that is. And, and we have given them the ability to, to do something instead. Um, and so I don't think that, uh, this should be forced, um, on anybody. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, if uh, reasons to believe, uh, again, is the uh, science apologetics organization that I interview a lot and they have very interesting stuff. Um, Dr. Fuzzle Rana, uh, has a lot of interesting comments, uh, being a biochemist on this vaccine, very interesting comments that he has made. Um, in kind of the confidence uh, that I could say that he has in the vaccine. And I find that very fascinating. And the scientific reasons that he has behind it is that this is really a technology that even though it's new for the first time being implemented, to my understanding, it's an older technology that they've been working on for a very long time. And, and um, if really shown to be successful, that this could make vaccines radically different in the future, because now with the way that, it, that, that it, this one is working, at least, it kind of becomes this plug and play system where we can just change out one little thing and boom, uh, we can go with different vaccines and it could be a huge breakthrough for science. And so he has a lot of very interesting um, comments on that as well. But yeah, I definitely don't think that we should be forced to take the vaccine against our will. Uh, we haven't done that with other vaccines, so I don't think we should necessarily do that with this one. So um, awesome. Well, with that, uh, we will wrap up our time again. Next week is going to be a conversation on uh, the age of the earth. Again, I have a young earth creationist coming on to uh, to check that out and to, um, or not to check that out, but to have a conversation with me and to kind of give some pushback against my views. Again, I'm, what I'm going to be arguing for, it's not a debate, it's a conversation, but what I'm going to be trying to present is, yes, I am my personally, I am an old earth creationist, but I think that the Genesis account allows for both interpretations. I think that they're both valid. And so we can take different approaches and we can look at the evidence and come to the decision that we think makes the most sense. I look at the age of the earth, similar to, I look at different views of eschatology, uh, the Calvinism, Arminianism debate. I have my view. I think there's one that is right. Uh, they're not both right. One is right. One is wrong, but we can both be Christians and we should both be able to get along uh, no matter what you believe, this should be an in-house debate. And so that is at least going to be kind of what I'm, what we're going to be talking about is does scripture 
allow for the possibility of an old earth and what are some reasons uh, for that or not. And so that is going to be the conversation next week on Friday, uh, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And the next week after that, I think I take the week off to be in Utah. And then I think the final Q&A. I think those are the last few interviews coming up here. Um, again, I did get some books in the mail, so we are looking at having some more interviews coming up here in the future uh, very soon. Let me look at the calendar really quick. Yeah, next week, then Utah, and then the Q&A on the 25th. So this is what's looking forward. So you can subscribe. You can check out the channel. I do want to address you lastly to um, a video I think that will be impactful uh, because of the conversation that we had today is uh, just a few months ago or so. I interviewed... Um, Michael Sherrard, there we go. I interviewed Michael Sherrard, that'll pop up over here, uh, on this idea of Christianity providing true meaning, purpose, and value in life. I think it goes a lot along with what we talked about today and how Christianity truly gives that, and a secular worldview does not. And so when we recognize that, it radically shapes how we look at what has happened in history and where we are going in the future. So thank you guys so much. Um, oh, just kidding, I have one more question came in. Kelvy Quayo, you got in right at the last minute. Um, what is a good reaction to Christians that say we are not living, not living neighbor, like neighborly, like we're not being, uh, we're not loving our neighbor. Um, I, I think that you can respond by saying, okay, well maybe, uh, how'd you come to this conclusion? Um, what examples are you seeing? Because I think we should be able to, as I mentioned, we should as Christians be able to look back and say, look, this person got it wrong. They were not living the way that Jesus has called us to live. They were not loving their neighbor. And we should be able to tell it like it is. And if they're like, well, all Christians are bad. It's like, well, that's not true either. Uh, we can't make this blanket general statement of everyone is this or everyone is that. And so I think that we should be able to kind of ask questions and say, well, in what sentence? And in, in what way are Christians not loving their neighbor? Um, oh, by vaxxing, uh, by not getting the vaccine. Um I think there are many ways to love people. And um, look, I, I I look at scripture and I can't remember the, the verse off the top of my head, but I'm sure that you guys know the one I'm talking about, where there are things that are Christian liberties and Christian freedoms. But when you are around, a, it calls them a weaker brother. When you're around someone who has an issue with it, you choose not to participate in order to love them. Right. And, and I think the context, if I remember right, is like with, you know, um, I, well, I, but it's often applied to drinking. I forget if that's the context. It's like, look, if you are with a drunk and they are sober and trying to give up drinking, even though I do believe it is a Christian freedom that we can have a, a beer or a glass of wine, um, you choose not to. To, to not be a problem to that person. If they're saying, look, this is an issue. I can't be around alcohol. You don't go, well, it's my Christian freedom. I'm going to do it anyways. And there's an act of love to say, look, I'm just not going to do this. Now, I think when it comes to something like a mask, uh, that has been my approach to say, look, I, it is a simple thing that I can put on that if you have a problem with this, I can put this on and, and, um, and that is an act of love in a sense. Now, I think that as we are getting to the place where CDC is saying, look, outside, you don't have to wear a mask. Like, I, I'm not putting it on very much, you know. But if someone said, look, this is a problem. Will you please put it on? I'm happy to put it on. Even though I think it's a freedom, like I don't have to, I'm going to do it because I love the, the neighbor. I haven't thought a ton about this, but I do think that there is a, a bigger problem with applying the same thing to a vaccine because the vaccine is much more invasive and permanent than just putting on a mask. 
And so to say that you, if you're not getting vaccinated, you are not loving your neighbor. I think that is a much more dramatic step because of recognizing the invasion of that. And, and um, you know, I, I don't think that we'd applied that to other Christians in the past. Maybe they did. You know, like I, I know other families that are anti-vaccine and, and they just didn't get whatever vaccines. But it's not like oh, you hate people because you're not getting vaccinated. It's like, no, like I want people to be safe and I want my kid to be safe and I'm skeptical about this. And maybe their skepticism is warranted. Maybe it's not warranted. But look, they're skeptical. Skeptical. We should love them by allowing them to live by their conscience. And so I think that something like the vaccine is um, is more serious, is more invasive. And therefore, I, I would not put it in the same category as something like wear a mask to love someone. Um, and I think as the scripture that I mentioned, that is, um, look, even though this is a Christian freedom, if your brother in Christ struggles with something, don't do it out of a love for them. And so uh, that's kind of how I would see as um, we are called to love people. Um, but I think that, I don't know if I can say that there's a certain boundary or a certain extent where it's like, no, you, I can't do X. Um, there's a certain responsibility that we have as well to living by our conscience and how God has created us. So um, I agree. That is a great question. Um, and so with that, we will wrap up again. Now that video will pop up over here with Michael Sherrard on the uh, goodness of Christianity and the value and dignity that comes from it. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your week and a great rest of your day. Continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Thank you guys for being here, Sarah and Slam and Kelby. Appreciate it. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And everybody else, see you next week. Bye, everybody. Won't hesitate to follow your love.